Sound Design. Welcome to Sound Design Live. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm here to answer the question, where have you been? You may have noticed that there hasn't been a new podcast in over four months. Well, there's a good reason for that. Back in May, I ran away to join the circus. I moved onto the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey train to start working on their new touring circus act, Out of This World. Now, I know what you must be thinking. The circus? Really? With elephants and tigers and scary clowns? Well, yes and no. The modern Barnum and Bailey show is owned by Feld Entertainment, who own a bunch of other touring shows, like Disney on Ice and some monster truck shows. They currently have two circuses touring, both under the Barnum and Bailey name. We call them the Red Unit and the Blue Unit, but you will see them advertised as Circus Extreme and Out of This World. The other important thing to know is that there is less focus on the animals now. I would really call it a variety show with a live band based on a circus. Some of the acts are original and choreographed by a creative team that Feld Entertainment hires, but most of them are acts that Feld has purchased for the tour and has figured out how to mix into a loose narrative. For example, there is a tiger show by Alexander Lacey, but Feld didn't create that, Lacey did. And there are several parts of the show by a group of Chinese skaters and acrobats, but their main tricks and stunts were trained and learned before they joined the circus. So maybe you have a little bit clearer idea of how the whole thing is put together now. And to give you a better idea, I'll post some videos in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on sounddesignlive.com by searching for circus. One big difference between this show and all of the previous circuses, though, is ice. Imagine a three-ring circus where ring one, the downstage ring, is totally ice. Plus, there's ice around the sides that the skaters can enter and exit. Where did they get this idea? I don't really know, but I heard someone mention that it's popular in Europe right now and Feld wanted to be the first one to do it in the U.S., One thing is for sure, though, it makes load-in and load-out that much more exciting when you can slip and fall at any moment and you have to push your gear around on ice. So, I was hired as head of audio for one very important reason. They only had two months to produce a new show and get it ready to go out on the road. When I heard this, I thought, wait, what? Two months? That's nothing. When I work in theater, I usually only have one week to tech a show. Two months is a huge luxury. But that shows my naivety because the way they produce shows at Feld has nothing to do with the way a piece of theater is produced. In theater, the script is written way before anyone decides if they want to produce it, usually. Then about a year before it's going to open, they start getting the creative team in place and actually producing all the assets for the show. You know things are going to change once you get into the theater, plus labor costs go way up, so you want to be as prepared as possible. Uh, And that's what I was expecting, a completed design that I would execute on. (laughs) Was I wrong, though? The way circuses are produced at Feld is that everything is written at the same time, or at least that's what I observed. They have an overarching story idea and a theme, outer space in this case, but when I arrived, about two months out from the first tour date, Only one-third of the music was finished, and to my surprise, there was no sound designer. There was a music department, but they basically considered their job over when the work left their office. 
That left me and the rest of the audio department with the task of figuring out how to make it all work. So as time went on, I started to realize that I wasn't there because they needed someone who could learn the show quickly. I was there to figure out the sound design and turn a nine-piece band, ringmaster, and six channels of playback into a show that thousands of people wanted to pay for. Still, two months seems like plenty of time. Or at least that's what I would have thought before starting the work. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to convey how overwhelming it felt at the time, but I think the only thing I can say is that when Cirque du Soleil builds a new show, they spend six months to a year with a sound engineer in the room learning the show as they rehearse and build it. So two months doesn't seem like that much time compared with a year. So I could talk more about how the show was built and what it was like to work at a large organization like Feld and live on the train, but what I thought would be most helpful today would be to share what a day on tour looked like. That way, you'll get an idea of how one of these tours operates in case you ever want to work on one, and I'll be able to share some of the lessons that I learned. So let's get started. The entire show was built on ice. So once the ice is set, the heads of department plus a small crew and local riggers would arrive for pre-rig. This is when all the boxes from the semis would get unloaded and the motors for the grid would get hung. You might be wondering why we had semis because when I first heard that, I thought, wait, doesn't everything go on the train? But no, the train is primarily a 300 person passenger train. It's a moving village. Most of the equipment for sound, lighting, and video actually travels on trucks. When you think about it, it's a lot more reliable because the train would often get delayed and most arenas have loading docks for semis, not train cars. So during pre-rig, the head of the auto department would spend about six hours unloading all the boxes, positioning them strategically around the arena floor, and then unloading the speakers from those boxes. The next day, our four-person audio crew would arrive at 8 a.m. for load-in, and a delicate dance would begin where we would get our system onto the grid at the same time as the grid was coming together without getting in anyone else's way. While the head started to set up front of house, the other three people would unload all of the speaker brackets and put them into place. By the time we finished with this, the grid was usually in place and we could attach the brackets. These were big, heavy, custom-made brackets to accommodate the unique sound system design of the show. Now, it would be easier to show you a design, but just imagine a three-ring circus that looks like a three-quarters thrust stage. So there are people all the way around it, except for the back, which is blocked off with drape. So we had arrays of Meyer Sound CQ1, CQ2, MSL4, and 650 HP speakers all the way around to accommodate the audience who surrounded the stage. Here's a detail that may blow your mind, because it took me a long time to wrap my head around it. We put the speakers in the same position with the same aim every time. We didn't take measurements of the arena or do predictions in MAP-XT or anything like that. Now, looking back at it, I realize that this is probably the only way we could get the load-in done in one day with only four people, and maybe more importantly, the grid was completely full. We had to fight for every inch of space we got there, So moving the speakers around for each location was out of the question. Okay, so once we had the brackets on, we would start to hang the speakers. As you guys know, powered speakers can be pretty heavy 
And oh my God, I do not miss struggling with um, 180-pound MSL4 speakers. Once the speakers were in place, we would run power and signal to each one. Then we would flash out the speakers, troubleshoot any continuity problems, and finish any cosmetic issues, and send half of the audio department home. This entire process usually took about eight hours. At this point, the technical lead and I would finish up whatever we needed to do at front of house and monitors and wait for the grid to go up. One big job that always needed to get finished during that time was placing the 21 measurement microphones and connecting them all with SIM3 at front of house. Usually by 7 p.m., the grid would be up and we would start tuning the system. Here's another thing that's going to surprise you. We never moved the measurement mics. They were each placed on axis with the speaker they were measuring and stayed there. We never measured off axis or crossover points, which at first seems crazy, but remember when I said that the speakers also never moved on the grid. This is all in an effort to make it super efficient to install and optimize. Delay and phase were all measured and set at the shop and never changed. Now you might be thinking, hold on. How could that work? Wouldn't the changing shape of each arena change the arrival time at the seats? Yes, you're right. But the most important thing here is that the relative delay between the speakers remain the same. So although row 216 might be closer at arena X than arena Y, that just meant that there was less overlap between speaker coverage and that our main sub alignment would shift. But how much? I'm not sure. Would it have been better to measure those crossover points and reset the delays? Yes. Would it have made a significant difference? I can't say. It would have been fun to actually do those measurements and then compare the results, but by the end of the tuning process, it was usually 9 or 10 at night and I had to get back to the train so I could be back in the arena at 8 a.m. the next morning to finish load-in. But let me tell you a little bit more about the tuning procedure developed by Charles Garza, Director of Audio Operations over at Feld. The first step was to load the project template that we created at the shop into Compass. Then plug headphones into SIM3 to verify each microphone was arriving in the right channel. Then take the first measurement, starting with main 3, and save a trace without making any changes. That trace would be used for level setting later on. Then it was time to EQ, starting with the low end. As the measurement was observed in SIM3, the technique was to insert necessary filters to shape the low end to flat, then add 12 decibels to each of those filters to create a 12 dB low end boost. Then insert filters as necessary to treat the biggest offenders up to 2 kHz, always watching the SIM3 screen. Later, after the first pass of all speakers, check high frequency response during combined systems. Also, it was important to never use a filter more narrow than 0.3 octave, with the reason being that anything more narrow than that would change just by moving a seat or two over. So after the mains, tune the downfills, matching response with the mains, but increasing level by three decibels. The idea here was that these were the premium seats and therefore they should get more SPL for their money. The rest of the system followed the same process until the end when we would return for a lobe study of the corner clusters. Once the system was tuned, it was time for toning. Play music, listen to it on headphones, walk the room to compare, 
and experiment with changes to the master input EQ. We often ended up cutting a little bit of the low mids and shelving up the highs. I know I just blasted through that pretty quickly, so if you'd like to see this procedure written down and compare it to your own, I've put together the entire thing into a one-page PDF that you can download at sounddesignlive.com circus or by texting me right now at 747-666-5768. That's sounddesignlive.com circus or 747-666-5768. Okay, I want to address another question that you might have if you've ever been to see one of these shows. Why do we go to all of this trouble if there is a house system already installed, tuned, and more powerful than ours? And that has happened more than once. The answer is money. Uh, the arena charges a fee to use that system, so budget-wise for the tour, it makes a lot more sense to use the speakers and human labor that they already paid for. Okay, so the next day, we're back in the morning to install the bandstand and finish setting up anything left over at monitors in front of house. After lunch, there's a sound check, and we go straight into a full dress rehearsal before opening uh, that night at 7.30 p.m. Uh, could be different times, different nights, but that was a pretty common time. Most other days of the tour usually have two or three shows with an hour of presets, an hour of pre-show, then a two-hour and 15-minute show depending on how well the cats behaved. So that's where I was for the past four months, and that's why there was no podcast here. Um, if you are thinking about running away to join the circus and have more questions about what it was like, feel free to email me at nathan at sounddesignlive.com or comment on this post, which you can find by searching for circus at sounddesignlive.com. Sound Design. Live.